Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. Good morning. Uh, So we'll just deal with the elephant in the room right away. I'm not Rick. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, I've been praying that God would soften our hearts and that uh, whatever I say, that he would make effective uh, to change us. Because nothing, my, my words alone aren't going to change anything. It is, in fact, God working in us uh, that's going to hopefully uh, take these words, his word, uh, from Philippians that we'll hear this morning and through his Holy Spirit actually change us. Um, so, having said that, uh, first I'm going to start out with uh, some bad news. If you like Steph Curry, I'm going to just not... Uh, I'm going to say something that, you, that might upset you just a little bit, Chris Lasseter, just a teeny, teeny bit, but not, not much, okay? And for those of you who don't know who Steph Curry is, he's the... He, just, he was just named the MVP of the NBA uh, for the second year in a row. And I happen to really like Steph Curry. Uh, I've never actually watched him play a basketball game, but I've watched a bunch of his highlight reels. And based on that, I can tell you I really like Steph Curry. Okay? Um, so having said that, the good news is... Um, well, we'll get to the good news a little bit later. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, if you would, please turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, I encourage you, before you leave today, we've got one on the back table. I would love for you to pick one up. That's our gift to you. And we think uh, the Word of God is powerful and active and actually has the power to change us. So we want people to have that. Um, Our tradition here is to stand as we read. So if you would, uh, as you're able, please stand. So this is Paul, and he's writing this letter to a church in a city called Philippi. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Father, I pray that you would, in fact, be present this morning, that you would speak through me. I pray, Father, that you would change us, change our hearts. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, So by way of quick review, we are in fact studying a letter. We call it the book of Philippians, but this is a letter that Paul is writing to a group of people, the church, in a city called Philippi. And this isn't just a random group of people. Uh, Paul actually helped start this church in Philippi. 
And so these, these are not just kind of, this is, these are not abstractions for Paul. He's actually writing to people he knows and cares about deeply. And also, you might have noticed, we're getting to the end of this book. There's only about 10 verses left after this. And the, so these are really some of Paul's closing thoughts. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at uh, these verses. And there's, there's not that many, there's just four of them. And we're going to try to take some of those verses and then apply them to us. So I'm going to start with verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So first, remember, if you've been with us through the book of Philippians, uh, kind of the, the overarching theme, the name of our series through the book of Philippians is a beautiful community. And so Paul is writing to this beautiful community, the church, That's what we mean by beautiful community, the church. He's writing to this church. And he's in this in this instance here, he's he's thanking them, or he's rejoicing because they have not forgotten him. Now Paul isn't with them, he's far from them. And so he's 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 thanking them, he's saying, Hey, you guys haven't forgotten me. I appreciate that. And he's rejoicing because they've apparently sent him some kind of support. And scholars think that's probably some, some monetary or financial or material support. But the interesting thing is, Paul's rejoicing for a different reason than you might think. Because most of us, when we get like a birthday present or a Christmas present or something like that, we go, yay, I, I have my new iPod and I'm rejoicing in that. Or for those of you who are like my generation or older, like I have my new Discman or Walkman or 8-track or, you know, whatever. So we rejoice in the gift but Paul here is actually rejoicing because he sees this gift as an expression of the Philippians' faith. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, all those things that I taught you, you haven't forgotten them, and you're expressing your belief in the gospel because, or, or through this gift. And, and Paul is essentially saying also, if we look at the very next verse, he's saying, I really appreciate your gift, but... I didn't actually need your gift. So verse 11, if you look at that, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need. Now that word need, has, there's a lot packed into it. And so let's look at that for a second. In the Greek, it means poverty or extreme lack. So Paul is using that word in this way, but a few verses later, he's going to use it in a different way. In, in Mark 12:44, Jesus uses this exact same word to talk about a widow. And, and if, you've, if you've been around the church for a while, there's this story where Jesus is in the temple, and the widow brings, um, or a widow, brings her her offering, her tithe money, and she, she puts it in the, the offering box or whatever they had. And Jesus turns to the people beside him, and he says, this widow, out of her poverty has put in everything she had to live on. And that word poverty that Jesus uses is the same thing here that Paul is saying when he says, not that I was in need. So Paul's talking about really potentially desperate economic circumstances, but he's saying, I'm not there. But then he goes right on and continues. So we're going to finish um, through verse 12 here. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, if I have learned, in whatever situation I am, to be content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, 
and need. So he uses that word need again. And in this case, he's saying, I have experienced that. It's not where I am right now, but I have experienced that desperate economic situation, just like that widow. But in the, in the midst of that, he's saying, but I know, I know how to face that. So we're going to flesh that out a little bit. Let's define something here, because Paul's making a remarkable statement. Can you imagine saying, hey, whatever situation I am, I'm good. I, I can be content. And he says that. How do, he knows how to be brought low, how to abound, to face hunger. So what does content mean? Because he's saying, whatever the situation is, I know how to be content. Um, but long story short, that word content there, he's just expressing that whatever my situation in life is, I am okay with that. He's going to tell us why in a second, but we're not going to get there yet. So content is this sense of being, you're okay with your lot in life, so to speak. But, uh, so it, it, because of our cultural waters that we swim in, we probably have some different ideas of what it means to be content. So let's talk for a little bit about what content does not mean. Uh, it doesn't mean peaceful, necessarily. It doesn't mean paying no attention. And it doesn't mean passivity. It doesn't mean stoicism. So let's talk about that peaceful idea. Christian contentment, at least not the way we imagine it as Americans, is not peace. So if you Google, do a Google image search of Christian contentment, you're going to find a bunch of images of very still water. And then you'll find other images of people gazing at very still water. And sheep. You'll find pictures of sheep also. But, but this is not Christian contentment at all. There's nothing biblical about it. Because this perspective just reinforces the cultural notion that we have that in order to be content, we have to have this very specific set of circumstances. That's what we need for contentment. And that's not actually biblical. In fact, Paul is saying the exact opposite. Paul is saying, in whatever situation I am in, I can be content. So content doesn't mean peaceful. Second, content doesn't mean paying no attention to hard things. Um, so this is, the, this is the too blessed to be stressed mindset. And you may have heard this. Um, and these are, I'm painting with a broad stroke here, okay? Um, but this would be the response of someone who kind of goes, you know, my dog just died, a tree fell on my house, I just lost my job, but God is good. Amen. And you're like, I mean, God is good, but I don't know why you're so happy. So this is the, this is the idea that they're content, but only because they're denying that hard things actually are happening. And, the, and there's sometimes this idea in Christian culture that to acknowledge that things are hard or difficult is somehow unchristian. But that's, we, I, I can tell you about this book in the Old Testament. It's a pretty sizable book called Psalms. And the psalmist writes over and over again. He's, he's calling out to God, God, my enemies are pursuing me. I'm living in a cave. Uh, your people are being oppressed. The wicked are flourishing. The poor 
are being taken advantage of. And so he's expressing things are really hard. Things are hard for me. Things are hard for your people. But he comes around to express his faith in God. So contentment doesn't mean that we have to deny the hard circumstances. And third, contentment is not passivity. And this approach takes such a high view of the sovereignty of God that we just kind of, we stop doing. And this can look like great faith, but in reality it can be an excuse for laziness or inaction. And so an example of this might be the person who goes, hey, I'm content with what the Lord has given me, um, but he's not actually meeting his family's economic needs. We essentially, this is the idea that you resign yourself to your fate because, hey, we're just humans. Who are we to actually be acting and pursuing anything? God is absolutely sovereign, which he is, but we also see that God calls us to act. And Paul's life actually contradicts this in a major way. Paul is like as far from passive as you can get. Paul wrote most of the books in, or he wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament. He traveled thousands of miles on his missionary journeys, planting churches, things like that. Um, And then to top it all off, you want to talk about not being resigned to your situation. Paul's in prison writing letters to churches. Like, the dude's just not giving up. He's in these difficult circumstances, but he's just just keeping on. He's not giving up. He's not passive. Um, And then fourth, uh, contentment is not stoicism. This is pretty straightforward. It's not the idea that we're unaffected by our circumstances, that we're just gritting our teeth and getting through it, and that things don't change us. So contentment is not dependent on a set of circumstances. It doesn't require us to ignore or deny the harsh realities of life. It isn't resigning ourselves to our fate, and it's also not stoicism. So that's great. So what is, so what is contentment? Where does that actually leave us? So Paul gives us some context of how the situations in which he's content. He says, I know how to be brought low, I know how to face need, and I know how to face hunger. To give you an idea of what Paul's talking about here, that word, or that phrase, brought low, is the same word that he uses to talk about Jesus back in Philippians 2.8, when he says, Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross. That word humbled there is the same word that, he's trans- that we're translating here to be brought low. So Paul is talking again about some significant difficulties in his life, and yet saying, I can be content in that. The word hunger there means famished, um, and again, that's, that's the same word need there that means this desperate economic situation. Um, so that's, that's actually kind of the easy part for us to understand, because we all, as 21st century Americans, go, yeah, if my economic needs are being met, I really struggle to be content. But then he kind of he tricks us a little bit, because he says, I also know what it is to be content when I have abundance, when I have plenty. Is that difficult? I mean, is that hard for us to think about? Like, you're content when you're struggling, but how could you not be content if you have stuff? I I call this, I think a good way of thinking of this is the Amazon Prime effect. So we signed up for Amazon Prime this year. 
pretty big deal. And there's this, you know, anticipation of like, I just ordered something and I'm going to get it in two days. I'm not going to pay shipping for it. And it's going to satisfy some need in me. It's like Christmas, but every two days or something like that. (laughs) And you, you know, you open that box, there's a sense of this is exciting. And then you open it and you realize this was one of my auto orders and it's just body wash. Or whatever it is, it could be the new iPod, but we all have that experience of going, this is great, this is exciting, but it doesn't fill that hole that we thought it would. Maybe it does for a day or two. Your kids are a great example of this at Christmas time. They've got a bunch of stuff, but they get bored of their toys pretty quickly. And of course, we as adults do a better job of masking that. So Paul doesn't let us off the hook. Whether you're in economic hard times or good times, whatever your situation, it doesn't matter if you're in the 1% or the 99%. It doesn't matter if you make $15,000 a year or 15 15 15,000s. Paul is saying, and contentment is something you're all going to deal with. Okay. All right, so let's, let's move on a little bit here. So where does that leave us? To recap a little bit, Paul's received this gift. He says, I've experienced great need, I've experienced great abundance. And we get to the final verse in the passage, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you memorized that at some point in your life, right? <clears throat> so this is where the, you know, brace yourselves, this is where the Steph Curry part comes in. This verse doesn't actually have to do anything have anything to do with, like, athletic feats, necessarily. So Steph Curry has 413 written on his shoes. Um, And your English teacher, if you remember, in high school taught you that to understand anything in literature, you have to understand it in the larger context of what's being written. So Paul is not saying all things literally means all things. In fact, the NIV translates this as, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. So it's a reference back to the previous verses of being content in want and plenty, etc. Now, it's not to say that God can't do amazing things through his people. You know, in the Old Testament, Elijah prays and it stops raining for years. So God God can do amazing things through us. This just might not be the verse to support that idea. So, Steph Curry, I love you. You're an awesome basketball player, man. Um, But this is not the verse to support that idea. It doesn't have anything to do with sports or really physical tasks um, at all. So, let's let's drill down into this a little bit. Because we all know we are going to struggle with contentment. And Paul says... He can be content because of Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All right, so just stop there a second. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You might be sitting there thinking, that's an amazing statement. That's a very naive statement. Or... You might be thinking, you know, this, this is just typical of Christians. Christians are 
simplistic, and it's like Jesus is this like silver bullet fix for everything. The Sunday school answer: Jesus, God, the Bible. So let me ask you. Let me ask you this. Um, well, first, if you've been with with me this far, just listen a little bit longer, so we can drill into this. Um, what is your what's your greatest felt need, or or for honest, most of us don't have many needs that aren't being met. But what's your greatest want? Um, maybe it's a larger income. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a nicer car. Maybe it's having more friends at school. Right? That's that's a real felt need. Um, maybe it's success. For me, mine is I just want people to look at me and say he's competent. He's a really hard worker. And I'm most content in my life when I have. That. So what is that thing or that person or that situation for you? What is the thing, if you had it, you go, my life would be okay? Um, and if, you're, if you don't think you have that thing, ask your best friend or your spouse, and they'll tell you what that thing is for you, okay? So to deal with this simplistic idea... Christians are so simplistic, it's like Jesus is the silver bullet fix for everything. You know, one of the ideas that we can have when we look at a verse like this is that Paul's got his, his tank, his contentment tank, and when it gets low, he prays, and God takes his divine jar of contentment and tips it over, and Paul's contentment tank gets filled up, and he's good. And God is God, and he's supernatural, and so he can certainly do that for us. But the interesting thing is, Paul, in this book and in his writings, over and over and over again, he is amazed at who Jesus is. He's constantly reflecting on who Jesus is. That's where he's finding his contentment and his peace and his power. So if we look at Philippians here, he's doing that. I'm just going to quote a few verses here. Philippians 2, verse 8, he says, Jesus emptied himself. He's reflecting on who Jesus is. Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jesus is king. Philippians 3.8, he says, I count everything as loss because I know Jesus. And keep in mind that 3.8 passage is especially amazing because Paul has just listed the most amazing resume you could ever hope for. His own resume is amazing. And he says, I count it all as lost compared to knowing Jesus. Then Philippians 3.12, and this is, this is the one that really gets me. <clears throat> he says, I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So how is Paul being, how is it that he can be content? By the way, if you don't know Jesus or who Jesus is, go read the book of John or talk to somebody who has a relationship with Jesus. So what does this look like practically? Um, you know, this, this is all fairly abstract thus far. What does it practically look like to say, I can be content in Jesus regardless of what my circumstances look like? And I'm going to say two things, really. Um, repentance and faith and preaching the gospel to yourself. 
So I'm borrowing that phrase, preaching the gospel to yourself, from a guy named Jack Miller. Um, You can go look him up. Um, And the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself is just reminding yourself every day of what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus means for you. I'm going to walk through what this looks like in my life right now. Because the reality is, so I have a five-year-old, two four-year-olds, and a two-year-old living in my house right now, and a couple of you are in my same situation. So when I come home, it takes like two minutes for my blood pressure to just go through the roof. Um, So when I come home, there are no peaceful waters. I'm not like sitting in my chair gazing at peaceful waters, ever. Um, So having four little kids is a lot harder than I thought it would be. And it's hard for me to be content because I value peace and I value solitude. And and I've had, and and I've been praying a lot, you know, God give me peace, God give me patience. And one of the things that I realized is I'm really not content because I can't control I can't control my four kids at home. And they're not even being bad. They're just being, you know, little kids and they're just talking constantly. They're running around and blah, 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 blah. Like, they're not being bad kids. But I realized my kids are disrupting my comfort. Uh, My kids are revealing my limitations. And if you know me, you know I'm pretty even-keeled. And I like to portray this persona of, like, I've got everything together, I'm collected, I've got my stuff together. Um, And my wife can tell you, I have flipped out, you know, lost my temper, possibly, a few times, may have happened over the past few months, um, because I just can't, I just can't control that situation. Like, and and I'm realizing, I'm really upset because I'm realizing my own limitations. I'm way more limited than I thought I was. So what does repentance look like for me to go, God, this is not my ideal situation right now. I'm not very content. What what does repentance look like? So I think it looks like this. One, I repent. By the way, repentance just means turning. Turning from this thing, in my case, turning from my idol of comfort and control, and instead turning to Jesus. So, Father, I repent of valuing my comfort more than my kids. I repent of my pride in having people think that I've got everything together and finding my value in that. I repent of making my love for my kids so conditional. All right, so I'm turning. What does it look like now to place my faith in Jesus in that situation? Because that's what Paul's talking about, turning from one thing and placing your faith in Jesus. So this is what I'm praying. Jesus, I'm placing my faith in you. I don't have to be in control because you are in control. I'm placing my faith in what you say about me. You say that I'm valuable and you proved that by dying on a cross for me. And so I don't have to seek the approval of others because you say that I'm, that I'm approved. And I place my faith in you to help me love my kids 
because you say your Holy Spirit is working in me to make me more like you. And so I trust that I'll more and more be able to love my kids unconditionally because I can't do it right now on my own power. And I know all these things are true because Jesus has proven them to me. He died for me. He rose, he rose from the dead. So friends, as you, as you think about this verse, especially this, this last 413 verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it tells us that we can actually do something amazing through Jesus. And it's not an amazing sports feat. It's not success in our job or in any other area of our lives. It's the ability in any situation to go, I'm okay with this because I have Jesus. It tells us, this verse tells us that we can be satisfied in him even if you never get that thing or that situation that you want so badly. And we know it's true because Jesus walked that road before us. Jesus was brought low for you. He was humbled for you. And he did those things that, so that you would be freed from chasing after the perfect circumstances that you so desire. He did those things so that you could be freed from that and instead rest in him because he is enough. And it's Jesus who's pleading with you now, saying, come to me. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And it's Jesus who's asking you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's Jesus who lays down his life for us and invites us to him, saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. Let's pray. Father, you do, you do satisfy us. Um, and I thank you, Father, that even though you can just fill up our tank of contentment. Um, you help us own more and more of that contentment as we dwell on who you are, as we know you more through your word, as, and as we believe more and more what you have done for us through Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would change us. Father, that we would be freed from seeking perfect circumstances. And instead of seeking to change our circumstances, we would instead ask you to be with us in those circumstances and find that you are actually enough. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.